Well, good evening. Welcome back to our service. Just one quick announcement before we go into today's sermon, and that is to announce for our church conference, if we can have the slide up. So we were planning for a church conference to happen on the 18th of June. That was what we were hoping for. We were hoping for it to happen on the 18th of June, but instead, well, it will still happen on the 18th of June, but how it will happen will depend on the government measures when they are announced on the 13th of June. Regardless though, sign up for the conference today. The link is on the screen. It is tiny.cc slash asecon. That's tiny.cc slash asecon. It is all in capital letters. If you are subscribed to our church WhatsApp broadcast, you can go there. The link has been sent out on Wednesday as well. You can search for it. And we want to encourage everyone to take leave. The reason for that is we believe that there is something in setting the time apart for God and setting the time apart to come together as a community to do this, even if we have to go online. So a few possibilities that can happen depending on what the government announces. One, if the measures remain as they are, the conference on Friday will go online, but we will have an in-person service on Saturday for up to 50 people as per the current measures at our regular Saturday service timing. Other than that, if, for example, the capacity changes and we're allowed to bring more people in, we will do so, but the online option will continue to remain a possibility. So when you register, you'll be asked for your preference, whether you would like to attend it in person or you would like to attend it online. The people who get to attend it in person will be dependent on the government measures at that time. For example, Currently, it's 50, so the first 50 to say they would rather attend in person will get to attend in person. If it's 100, so on and so forth. The first 100 who say so will attend in person. So, other than that, go ahead, take your leave, register. Bishop Rennes will be speaking on the 18th of June at our conference and at the service on Saturday as well. As for the children, the, ca the conference, rather, the children's conference is still on, but it will be fully online. Parents will have details from Lindsay. With that, let's begin today's sermon. And before we pray, I just wanted to set, set this up a little. So last week, we celebrated the baptism of six candidates, you know, Loki, Eugene, Erwan, Haley, Jonathan, and Kaylin. And we were reminded what baptism is about. That baptism is a public declaration of our faith. That it's where we identify with Christ. That just as He was baptized, so too are we. And through baptism, as we are baptized, if we, if we heard it carefully in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are promised that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And Bishop Rennes will continue to elaborate what that means during conference. But for now, we know, we use this as a starting point to know that, it is, that this fulfills Jesus' promise in John 14, 26. If we can follow on the slide when it says... But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And it's amazing that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches us. It tells us that it teaches us all things. And this tells us that the Spirit is alive, the Spirit is active, right? That it longs to speak and teach into our lives. And like all teachers, just ask anyone that teaches in our midst, we have quite a few, most, if not all of them, well, I hope all of them, long to see one thing happen, and that is a life transformed. Where the transformation, the development of a person, the nurturing is core to what a teacher does. 
In the same way as the Spirit teaches us and we accept this teaching, we are transformed. Put another way, the Holy Spirit is key to our transformation. And it's interesting that across Paul's letters, whenever he mentions becoming a Christian, Paul references the Holy Spirit far more than the act of baptism. And that's not to say that baptism isn't important. It is. It's something that we know that is commanded by Jesus, right? But it is to say that baptism comes alive through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit being at work in us. And as we relate this to us as a church, we know from the past few sermons that a church without the Spirit is dead. That a church without the Spirit has no power to carry out its God-given mission. And being a Spirit-filled church takes place corporately, but living a Spirit-filled life cannot just be something that happens on Saturday from 5 to 6.30 or on Sundays during our service. Living a Spirit-filled life happens and should happen every single day of the week. And so today we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians 3 and we're going to explore four transformations that the Spirit brings about. But as we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are able to come together in your presence even though we are physically separated. But we come together in one heart and in one spirit. Lord, we come together and we recognize and we praise your holy name. We see you, we, are, we love you, and we celebrate, Lord, all that you are doing in our midst. We continue to look to you even in times like this for your healing hand upon our nation for your protection over everyone in the world and in Singapore. And humbly, Lord, as we come together, we ask that you connect and unite our hearts, that we come together in one heart as well, knowing, Lord, that you are working in our lives, desiring, Lord, the transformation that only your love can bring. Change us into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll go through the whole chapter well, I'll read it as we go through it. But the first area of transformation that the Spirit brings about is the area of transformed testimony. The first three verses go like this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you, are, that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. To understand the analogy that Paul is using here, we go back to the Roman world, and we understand that in the Roman world, letters of commendation were common. In fact, it's, our common, it's common rather in our day and age as well. Right? When we apply for jobs, we need references. We are aware of how important our LinkedIn pages are and we go after endorsements, right? And we go back to the ancient world for a little bit. If today we still give weight to recommendations like this, if we still give weight to letters of recommendation, just imagine in a world then without social media, without computers, without anything digital, these letters were the only thing that could affirm a person's credibility. And Paul himself had written letters of commendation or recommendation for people that he had sent out. So what was the issue here? Well, at that point in time, some were beginning to accuse Paul of getting into a habit of self-commendation. 
perhaps some were even questioning, right, where is Paul's letter of recommendation? Who is he to say these things that he's telling us? And so Paul addresses these people with the two rhetorical questions that began this passage in saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And the resounding answer is no. And the reason for it is what is highlighted there in the slide. Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Put simply, Paul is saying that the very lives the Corinthian church was to live was to be the letter of recommendation. Where what better way was there to show the authority and the legitimacy of Paul's ministry than the changed lives of the very people who were following him. That the transformed lives of the Corinthian church was to affirm the ministry that was at work. And Paul trusted that the Spirit had transformed and was continuing to transform the lives of the Corinthians. Right? And he challenged them to live out this transformation. He further explains it like this. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. See, Paul challenges them the word there is show. He says, you show that you are a letter. The challenge was for the people to live in the light of what the Spirit was doing in their lives. That because the transformation that the Spirit was doing was indeed happening, they were being challenged to live that way. That Paul trusted that the Spirit was transforming them and the Spirit was making them more and more Christ-like. But this doesn't mean that the lives of the Corinthian church were supposed to be transformed by human effort, right? Paul clearly states there, written with the Spirit of the living God. Implicitly, Paul clearly believes that their lives were changed by the Spirit, that in being filled with the Holy Spirit, in coming to Christ, they were being changed, and he challenges them to live in this way. And to underscore this transformation, that phrase on tablets of human hearts is used. And that's a reference to Jeremiah 31, 33, which states, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That such was the depth of change, such was the level of change that was taking place by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Paul saw this as the beginning of the fulfillment of what was said in Jeremiah 31. And Paul was challenging each and every single one of them to recognize that the Spirit was indeed at work in their heart, to begin living in that way. So the question then is, what does this transformation look like? Well, we note that phrase in verse 2, to be known and read by all. In other words, the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings about in our life here is something that is understandable by everyone. Well, the transformation that is taking place here, that is being referred to here, is not necessarily miracles and signs and wonders, but the character transformation in each of their lives. Simply, the proof 
of a spirit-filled life was not in written characters in a letter of recommendation, but in transformed character. In other words, it refers to the way that we carry ourselves. That as we become more Christ-like, do we display the fruit of the Spirit? Reverend Gilbert will share more on that next week. Right? How are we looked at by others in our lives? Are we testimonies? Are we letters of recommendation for the gospel? Because it doesn't take much to understand grace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It doesn't take much to see someone who has genuine care for the people around us, to be willing to serve those around us. And these are all areas that we need to work on. These are all areas that we need to learn to rely on the Spirit's transformation because that's what we are called to be. We are called to be a people who are living more and more in Christ-like ways as every day goes by. We are called to be a people who are patient. We are called to be a people who practice goodness. Because this is the transformation that ought to mark us as Christians individually and as a Christian community. That we are to be transformed testimonies that speak into others' lives. And this is what it means to live a lifestyle of evangelism. That people see us and they can see a little bit of Christ. So allow me to share a story. Some of us will have heard this before, but bear with it because I just felt that this is the best story to illustrate what it means to live a life of transformed testimony. So the year is 125 AD in Athens and there lived a philosopher named Aristides K who would later convert to Christianity. And this is a part of a long letter that he wrote and he testified to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And through his letter to the king, uh, in this letter, he surveyed various religious groups and he moved on to describe Christians. And this is what he noted. The paragraph is on the screen. I've shortened it for time, but it goes something like this. O king, it's the commandment of the law of the Christians and such is their manner of life. As men who know God, they ask Him petitions which are fitting for Him to grant and for them to receive. And they do not proclaim in the ears of the multitude the kind deeds they do, but are careful that no one should notice them. And they conceal their giving just as he who finds a treasure conceals it. And they strive to be righteous as those who expect to behold their Messiah." and to receive from Him with great glory the promises made concerning them. It is enough for us to have informed Your Majesty concerning the conduct and the truth of the Christians. For great indeed and wonderful is their doctrine to Him who will search into it and reflect onto it. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them." that by the lives and the actions of these early Christians, a Greek philosopher was able to say there is something divine in the midst of them. Do we live in this same way? Because this is what we are being called to. To be individuals who recognize that the Spirit is at work in our life and to submit ourselves to that Spirit and from there draw the strength to be the transformed testimony that God is calling us to be. That is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us that transforms us to be living commendations, 
that transforms us to be transformed testimonies. And the second area of transformation that the Spirit brings about is in transformed competence. Is in transformed competence. Verses 4 to 6 go like this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God that we are sufficient, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here what comes into question is competence. What makes Paul competent enough to be a minister of the gospel? And when we think of competence today, the world says, look at our CV. They ask for human competence, human accomplishment. And just this week, I was filling up my application form for, for TTC and, and I had to scan my poly transcript and I look at it and I'm like, am I, am I really that smart? But the thought came into my head, right? Where, where, what do all these A's mean in the grand scheme of things? In fact, even in studying theology, they call it a bachelor's in divinities or a master in divinity. And, and I'm reminded of one conversation or a few conversations that went on in my Bible school and it goes something like this, right? Where my lecturer and a few of us were just discussing and he goes, a degree in divinity makes me no more divine than constantly going to McDonald's makes me a burger. And the same sort of thing applies here. Where our call to be ministers, to be witnesses, to be testimonies, it doesn't change regardless of what human paper qualifications that we have. Because human qualifications do not matter in the economy of God's kingdom. The only competence that matters, the only approval that matters, the only place we need to go for to look for approval is God and God alone. The only reason we can minister is because the Spirit is alive in us. See, Paul points to something that's at the very core of our faith. In verse 4, he says that we have confidence through Christ towards God. In other words, Paul is saying that this confidence, this sufficiency is because of Christ. And Paul is firmly pointing back to salvation. That through Christ, through what the Lord has done on the cross, that's where the sufficiency comes from. And we can see Paul's process in, in recognizing this, right? That his competence or it comes from God. First, we see that Paul disowns any ability of his. He writes, not that we are sufficient ourselves to claim anything coming from us. When we see that the root of the Spirit's transformation lies in humility. And Paul clearly recognizes here that apart from Christ, he can do nothing. He then goes on, and he recognizes that his ability comes entirely from God, where our sufficiency is from God. Paul recognizes that to be divinely commissioned is to be divinely equipped. In other words, that if God has called you to this area, if God has put you here, He will make you, He will give you what you need to serve Him there. And finally, Paul recognizes what he has been made competent to do, which is to be ministers of the new covenant. And it's important that we remember this. It's important what our primary purpose is, to be ministers of the new covenant. That this is what the Spirit is empowering us to do. Not to make the most money, not to be the most famous or the most powerful, but the Spirit is transforming us to be ministers of the new covenant. And here's the truth of the matter, where each of us, having come into the faith, when we subject ourselves to Christ, being called to the Great Commission, we have this approval. We are called and transformed by the Spirit to be ministers of the new covenant. 
But being a minister of the new covenant doesn't mean that we need to quit our jobs and join the church, okay? Church also not, not enough money to pay you. But it does mean that wherever we are at, just as we are called to make disciples of all nations, we are empowered by the Spirit to be Lord's, the Lord's ministers. It doesn't mean either that we cannot be successful in our workplace, but that our success is not a means in itself, or it's not an end in itself, rather, but that we are blessed to be a blessing. That where we have been planted is where the Lord is placing us to be ministers for Him. And this is important to recognize because sometimes we struggle and maybe we ask ourselves, why aren't we doing well here? Why do I keep struggling in my job? Maybe the starting point, the point of transformation is our focus. Where instead of approaching it of, I need to do this job well, maybe our focus needs to change to, why has God called me here? Because we haven't been made competent to be successful in the world's eyes, we have been made competent to be His ministers, and it's from that as a starting point that everything else will come into alignment. So if we are called to the marketplace, if we are called to the commercial world, we be ministers there. We carry ourselves in excellence as a testimony to God's excellence. In the way that we carry ourselves towards our families, we be these ministers. In our relationships with our friends, we be ministers. That is what we are being called to do. That in our life, our decisions, we look to the Spirit to transform us to be the effective ministers that He longs us to be. And we can take heart, right, from Paul that, that we are not called to do this by our own strength. Instead, we are being called to surrender to Him to recognize that it is God's Spirit, it is by God's Spirit that we can minister. And where God has placed us, where God has led us, He has a purpose, and He will give us strength. That maybe we are daunted by the notion of changing seasons, right? Whether that's changing jobs, changing schools, becoming a new parent, wondering where to serve, but one thing rings true in all these areas that God has placed us in. Our competence and our sufficiency don't come from ourselves. They come from God. As Paul would later go on to write in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The Spirit brings about transformed competence. Competence that relies on God and not ourselves. A competence that makes us ministers for Him. And following this from verses 7 to 11, if you're following on in our Bibles, Paul then elaborates on the new covenant. He points towards a transformed glory, where the new covenant is so far glorious that the covenant of the Old Testament pales in comparison. But for the sake of time, we won't really dwell into this. Instead, we'll move forward to verses 12 to 17, which go like this. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord in verse 16 is identified as the Spirit. 
So here, Paul points out how the Holy Spirit brings about transformed access. The Holy Spirit brings about transformed access. Back in Old Testament times, specifically in in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35, which is alluded to here, Moses would go up to meet the Lord. And he'd come down glowing from the Lord's glory, and he would have to literally put a veil over his face. And the common explanation for that was that Moses could not be looked at. That Moses so reflected the glory of God that the Israelites were afraid, so he had to put a veil so that the Israelites could come forward. But Paul evolves this explanation. Paul writes, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And we think about that for a bit. Paul is saying that instead of being some coping mechanism so that the Israelites could speak to Moses, he interprets this as a way where Moses put a veil so that the Israelites would not see the glory diminish that the Israelites would not look upon the glory until it ended because the glory was actually fading. In other words, this links back to verses 7 to 11 where Paul records that the glory of the new covenant is an enduring glory. It's a glory that will not pass away. It's a glory that far surpasses what has come before. And he is writing here that we have this same access to this glory because of Christ. That through Christ it is taken away. Right? And this idea of a veil, when we think about it, a veil, when we put it over something, it's covering something, it's hiding something, it's making it concealed. Put into context, it means that beyond this glory being enduring, Paul is also saying that this glory has been revealed. The glory is no longer concealed. And the one key reason behind this is Christ. And each of us being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are now indeed part of this new glory. And in this new covenant through Christ, as we turn to the Lord, we are grafted into this story. We are made a part of this glory that is revealed. We can see this revealed glory through Christ. Our access to God is no longer hindered. In other words, by the Spirit of the Lord, we have renewed access to the Father. We are given access to God's plan as He wills. We are given access to pray. We are given access to God through Christ. And this access is the very reason that we can say in Jesus' name, Amen. And that's not something that we just do by rote, right? It is because of what Christ has done on the cross that we can pray. It is that because of what Christ done on the cross is the only reason that we can have direct access to God and that's why it's in Jesus' name that we pray through Christ. And it is why we can pray the Lord's Prayer. It's why we can, give, we can pray something like give us this day our daily bread because this is the access that is granted by the new covenant. And this is the freedom that is being brought about a freedom to have relationship with Christ, a freedom to be released from sin, to be released from bondage, to be released from the things of this world, to be free to live life as it should be, and that means to be free to live life in Christ. And this should radically transform our relationship with God. Where here it tells us because we are part of this new covenant, we can be bold. That we have the sure hope 
of an irrevocable, unchanging, permanent covenant with the Lord. And in times of uncertainty, in our everyday life, we can turn to Him. We have a transformed access to God through Christ. And all these three elements of transformation, a transformed testimony, transformed competence, and transformed access, they all lead up to one thing. And that is how Paul climaxes this passage, where he talks about ongoing transformation. In verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, when we talk about transformed testimony, we talk about transformed competence, we talk about transformed access, we know that the actual outworkings of these things begin over time or they happen over time because that is all part of our, our sanctification process. But nonetheless, Paul challenges the church to live like a transformed community, to begin to live life as Christ has called them to. Where if we could boil down the message of Paul to the Corinthian church in one sentence to sum it up, it would be, you have been changed, now live this way. That the challenge was for the Corinthian church to live in light of the future. And it's key that this transformation takes place amongst each and every single one of us. Because look at what the verse is saying. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image. This means that each of us, when it says we all, each of us together are being invited into this new covenant with God, and then with unveiled faces, meaning through Christ being able to see God in His glory, with lives that are yielded to Christ, with lives that are identified and we believe in Christ, we behold the glory of God. And to behold the glory of God is if we like the first checkpoint to this transformation process. Because behold doesn't simply mean to stare, to look at it in wonder, but the word beholding means to go beyond a casual look. It means to make careful study of the glory of the Lord. And that, of course, is a call in some ways for us to study His Word. And in that way, we are being transformed. And that word being tells us that it's an ongoing process. But let's take a moment to realize that this process doesn't need to slow down. All of us here experience what we like to call spiritual highs or spiritual lows, but that's not what's, what is spoken of here. When, it, when the verse talks about being transformed from one degree of glory to another, some versions say being transformed from glory to glory, that is ever-increasing glory. That is constant progress. And that's not to say that our circumstances are always good. Our circumstances may change. But the process, the refining of our character, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our life continues no matter the season. Because we have always been designed to go from glory to glory, to move from one degree of glory to another, to be ever increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. Thank you.
And all this transformation is attributed to the Holy Spirit right at the end as it says, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And this is the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who's able to change the very meaning of our lives, to be testimonies and witnesses for Him, who's able to change our very foundation of where we find ourselves worthy, the Spirit changes to recognize that our competence doesn't come from this world, but it comes from God. It comes from Christ alone. The Spirit changes through Christ our access to the Heavenly Father that we are now part of a new everlasting covenant. And in doing so, the Spirit begins a work in us that Christ will bring to completion in His time. That the Spirit is continuing to move in us, to move us and to grow us from glory to glory into the image of Christ. This is the work of transformation that is indeed happening for us to have come to God. It is a transforming work that is ongoing. It continues and it is present in our lives. We simply need to submit ourselves to be humble enough to say, Lord, change me. Spirit, change me. Spirit, grow me and be conscious that the Spirit is indeed at work. So as we close this time, if in our hearts and our spirits we sense, we're asking God that God, we, can, we, we need to rely on You. Lord, I want to be transformed into your likeness. Let's take this time yourselves. Come before the Lord. Come before the Lord and to ask Him. And maybe if there's someone watching who has not yet come to Christ, or simply wants to renew your dedication to the Lord, after service, pop into the Zoom prayer rooms. The staff will be happy to pray with you there. I'll update Pastor Mabel's Zoom prayer room after the service through the WhatsApp broadcast. But let's just give ourselves to the Spirit to say, Lord, transform us. Lord, as a church, we come together through you through Christ. We come together as one body, we come together in one heart. And we say, Lord, let your spirit move amongst our community, move in our lives to transform us to be who you want us to be. To renew our lives in everything that we do. We are subject to your spirit. Come Holy Spirit, change us, mold us, make us who you want us to be. As Dirty sings this song, let the Spirit move. We might be physically separate, but, the, but, we, are, but we serve one God and one Spirit who can touch us right where we are. So right where we are, 
as those he sings, as the band takes us through, cry out to God these words. And Pastor Darren will then come and close the service.